Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three-minute SOS meditations for you. Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind-down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then, honestly, I came back to it, and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. This is the Smart Passive Income Podcast with Pat Flynn, session number 110. Whoop, whoop. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, his definition of success is playing with his kids, Pat Flynn. Hey, everybody, what's up? And welcome to episode 110 of the Smart Passive Income Podcast. So thankful you're here. I'm going to get right into today's interview with a special guest. Tim Ferriss, author of The 4-Hour Workweek. He's been on the podcast before in session number 51. If you go to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 51, you can check that out. But lots of great new information in this particular episode, including stuff about his new podcast, why he created it, stuff he's struggling with, and the sort of 20% he's doing to get 80% of his results. In addition, we're talking we're going to talk about efficiency and how to be efficient today. We also talk about a lot of experiments he's running on his blog and on other people's websites right now. And lastly, I ask him a question that I should have asked him the last time he was on, which was, "Tim, what would you do if, right now if you wanted to start a business from scratch?" Uh, and, and great insight coming from Tim here. So I think you'll enjoy this. Thank you so much, and uh, let's get to the interview. What's up, everybody? I'm so happy to welcome back. Mr. Tim Ferriss, the Smart Passive Income Podcast. What's up, Tim? How are you? I'm great. I'm enjoying Hawaiian weather in San Francisco while it lasts. <laughs> it's been it's been a whole year and a half since you've last come on the show. That was in episode 51 for everybody out there. And a lot has happened since then. You wrapped up the whole four-hour book series, and now you're doing a podcast. And I'd love to talk and start with that, actually. First of all, congratulations on it. I saw that it ranked number one in overall iTunes when it came out and number one in business right now. Um, first, tell us uh, about the podcast. Why did, you, why, did you, why did you start one? The podcast for me was really an outgrowth of pursuing an idea that wouldn't go away. And I, I find that most of my, whether they're good ideas uh, or not, impactful ideas tend to be the ideas that keep me up for maybe two nights a week or two nights every other week with insomnia, and they just don't go away, whatever that might be. So a screenplay is one that's been bugging me for years now, so it's probably going to end up happening at some point. The podcast was another because I noticed 
when I was doing the launches for my various books and whatnot, that the interviews I enjoyed the least were the soundbite constrained two or three or four minute television segments. Mm -hmm. Uh, There was really no room to improvise. You couldn't get a word in edgewise. It was very artificial and it felt like a large waste of time because a lot of prep went into it, a lot of pre-production, a lot of waiting around in the green room before and then uh, all sorts of stuff afterwards, wiping off makeup, whatnot. And the antithesis of that was my podcasting experience, where I had such a great time on your podcast, on Joe Rogan's podcast, Mark Maron's podcast, Nerdist, etc. And I enjoyed every single one of those interviews. <laughs> and so I started to naturally ask myself two things. Number one, would I enjoy being the interviewer as much as being the interviewee? I don't know. Uh, but it seemed like the format of the podcast was so conversational that that could be the case. And then secondly, I realized... I have these conversations in Silicon Valley or New York or Japan or Argentina, wherever I might be in the course of doing book research and in other contexts that are just fascinating. I mean, they're just these these conversations on many, many, many occasions that I haven't captured uh, for the book, let's say, because I didn't see the value in retrospect. That was stupid. Secondly, uh, where I, I just wish other people could be a fly on the wall because the person I'm talking to is so interesting. And I'm sure you've had those conversations too where you're just like, oh my God, like <laughs> what? Like you're creating turbines in space to replace like wind power on the earth? Like what? I, people have to hear about this. This is, this is insane. And the objective of, of my podcast, The Tim Ferriss Show, then became to allow people to be a fly on the wall for those conversations, but also to dissect how they became and how they are the best of what they do. So it's applying the 80-20 principle to their skill set, whether they're a chess prodigy like Josh Waitzkin, who's, who was the basis for searching for Bobby Fischer, who was my second interview, or say Jason Silva, who's a filmmaker, mm-hmm. or a hedge fund manager, or whatever it might be. Awesome. Yeah, I've had those conversations. I haven't had any conversations with anybody, you know, building wind turbines in space. That sounds pretty cool. But I have had those conversations without a recorder. And I'm just like, man, I wish I could just save this and share it. And I think that's what's cool about a podcast is there are kind of really no rules to what you have to or what you can't publish. And I think a lot of opportunities are missed from people who are either too scared to start a podcast or don't know technically how to do it. There's a lot of great conversations out there that a lot of people would benefit from that aren't getting it because um, you know the world of podcasting is still very, very new. Now, what were some of the challenges you've faced? And you know, I know that you know Tim Ferriss is as non-human as we like to think you are sometimes. We also know that you are human. Have you experienced any challenges with getting your podcast up and going? Oh, for sure, uh, I, from start to finish. And I'd say that... Just to take a step back to add one more comment to the last uh, question that you asked, and that is one thing I love about the podcast and is the absolute creative control of what you put out. Mm. And many people come to me to ask about self-publishing versus traditional publishing versus hybrid models and anything besides self-publishing, whether that's podcasts or books or television or feature film or anything creative forces you to make creative compromises. That is just part of the agreement. And I've, I've realized, maybe it's my sort of advancing age and I'm becoming a cantankerous old man, I don't know, but <laughs> I really like having final say on pretty much every aspect of what I put out. And uh, it's very hard to arrange that unless you control it start to finish. And the podcast is just so pure in that way for me. I really, really love that return to basics. 
Right. Uh, to answer your question about the challenges, I w- I've wanted to do a podcast since at least two years ago. And the reason I didn't do it is there was a deluge of information. I think that most teaching, most books, most uh, most most anything fails from, uh, if you had to choose one, too much information, not too little information. So I went out there and it's like, how to start a podcast? And I was like, there's so much conflicting advice, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, for instance, uh, I didn't even know how to create a feed. I know this is embarrassing, but it's like, how do you even create a feed? Is that the first thing that you do? Like, And then where do you put the podcast? Where do you host it? Do you host it with just someone like a Rackspace or a Media Temple? Or is there somebody else that you need to look at? And what about equipment? Does it need to be really complicated? What about post-production? Do I do that myself? Do I use Audacity? Do I use GarageBand? Do I use whatever it might be? And there were so many options. I fell into a paradox of choice situation where I just did nothing. And I think that that's true for many, many things. I mean, for instance, uh, one of the startups that I worked with a while back, it was called Jiminy originally, rebranded as Daily Burn and then sold to IAC, which is uh, run in part by Barry Diller. So it was a great outcome. Uh, We were able to increase their conversion rate on their landing page. No new design, no new real coding to speak of, just removing clickable buttons. We just Mm. removed clickable elements and then centered the most important click in terms of the the, the button and made it a little more pronounced with a complementary color. And the conversion went up, I think, 25%. Wow. When in doubt, reduce the number of options that you offer people or the number of options that you consider. So for me, I really had to rely on talking to friends of mine, whether that's Lewis Howes or pinging you about certain aspects of it or uh, friends who are, are you know, somewhere in the top, say, whatever, several hundred podcasts to ask them, like, what do you do? Like, help me simplify this. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that was the only way I was able to get started. Uh, and I, I, but it's, it's astonishing to me how seemingly complex podcasting is given how long it has been in existence. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's it's been around for years. And just now people are starting to, you know, it, like it's starting to catch on mainstream. And even then it's still not push button easy. No, no, it's not. And it, it might be at some point, but it's an art craft. Uh, and I think that you need to, like anything else, uh, practice it. And for me, part of a, another thing that triggered my interest in the podcast, not to sort of belabor this, but... Uh, I worked on this this TV show for the last year, year and a half with Turner Broadcasting. And so this comes back to the conversation about compromises and uh, making deals with larger entities. It's been The launch has been postponed many, many times. And this has been extremely frustrating because the end product is, is really outstanding. I mean, I, I very specifically picked the production company that did all of Anthony Bourdain's stuff. It's a good show. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, what I got to do in the process of making that show was voiceovers. And voiceovers can be brutally boring and painful and time-consuming. But I learned how to read without sounding like you're reading. And that is a real skill you need to practice. But it, it, it reinvigorated my interest in the spoken word. And uh, I also simultaneously, not, not a lot of people know, know this perhaps, but I have a book club that I launched experimentally. It's just the Tim Ferriss Book Club where every month or so I, I push a book into the limelight that I feel has changed my life in some way that did, that did not receive the attention or might not receive the attention it deserves, if that makes sense. Yes. And 
as part of that, I have acquired, in some cases, audiobook rights. So I'm actually producing the audiobooks myself. And as part of that, have learned a lot about audio. So it's just, it's just such a pure, old-fashioned, for lack of a better term, oral tradition. It's, it's so primal, yet so technical. And the combination and the juxtaposition of those two things I find really, really fascinating. And I'm really insecure about my own voice. So this is kind of like therapy for me. <laughs> well, I found that for myself since starting a podcast, I've become more confident as a speaker and a communicator, not just in business, but on stage, but even in my personal life with friends and family, I'm much better able to communicate what is in my head with everybody else around me. And I think you're going to see even, I mean, you're a great communicator now. It's going to be even better down the road after you have a number of podcasts in your belt. I hope so. And let me just add one more thing to that, which is I'm doing a podcast partially not to become good at podcasts. And when I look at acquiring a skill, the one of the first questions I ask myself is, what might this transfer to? Because if you learn, for instance, how to write a short story, learning to write a good short story is not only good for becoming good at writing short stories, because for most people, there's no real utility there professionally, right? Mm -hmm. But if you become really good at writing short stories and you have a constraint like five pages or three pages, you become very good at putting your thoughts on paper and removing extraneous fluff and redundancy and uh, anything that is unclear. And that transfers tremendously to everything from negotiating to uh, dispute resolution with your spouse to fill in the blank, selling, sales copy. It transfers tremendously. So for me, podcasting is really just a wedge in the door to improve a whole spectrum of other skills that transfer to other areas. Yeah. No, I love that. I I, I, I totally can see that. And you know, you, you're, you're always big on the 80-20 stuff, and I want to ask for all the podcasters out there who are listening, um, Tim, what, what, are, what, are the, what are the 20% of things you're doing to potentially get 80% of the results with, pot, with your podcast? Oh, yeah, great question. So the first is find someone to do the post-production for you, and there are many. Tim, I lost you. Hey, Tim. Hey, are we back? Hey, yeah. Uh, hey. You, you had just mentioned, um, you said, great question. First thing I would do is get somebody to do post-production for me. <laughs> and then I cut out. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, that's so ironic. It's just very appropriate. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep case, this in, by the way. Case in point, right. <laughs> so, all right, so we're good? We're rolling? Yeah. No, this is great. Okay, cool. So... <laughs> Find someone to do post-production. And this was the big kind of elephant in the room for me that I sometimes didn't acknowledge, but it was always the predominant reason that I didn't pull the trigger and get started on the podcast. I was like, ah, I don't want to have to learn another Adobe product or something that's just this monster of a program with a million different options. I don't want to take the time to do that. And you can find someone very easily to, say, uh, help you put together an intro, an outro, if you even want it, and then slap that together with some fading with an interview in the middle. I, I do very little editing to the interview itself. I let it run. If there are curses in it, that's fine. Very Joe Rogan-esque mm -hmm. in that respect. 
and uh, recognizing something along the lines of what Reid Hoffman said, who's chairman of LinkedIn and considered the oracle of Silicon Valley. He's a brilliant, brilliant entrepreneur and investor. He said, "If you're in effect, I'm paraphrasing here, but if you're not embarrassed by the first version of the product that you ship, you're too late. And I love that. <laughs> I, so I took that approach with the podcast. I was like, you know what? Screw it. I've been postponing this for so long. Let me make an experiment of it present it that way to my audience and just put it out there. And you can see, I think, a progression. I have uh, five episodes or so out, six, and you can see the, you, the experimentation and you can see the progression in a way, the evolution of a podcast, which I think is kind of fun. And uh, in terms of, so number one, find somebody who can, who can produce it, which is not that hard. Go on, you can go on Elance, which I guess is now Odesk, and you can find someone really easily. Uh, get some basic equipment. So you could probably comment on this better than I could. Uh, I, I grabbed one of the mics that you recommended for this type of Skype interview, which is fantastic. Are you using it right now? I'm using the Audio-Technica. Yeah, nice. the, the, the ATR2100 is fantastic. It's really... For the price point, which is what, 50 bucks or something, it's really fantastic. I mean, it's better than the Yeti. It's better than all these other things that I tried. And uh, I also have a Zoom H4n if I am doing an in-person, say, two-person conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have two just very basic stage mics with XLR cables for that. Uh, where it gets a little dicey is if you have three or four people. And I actually recently had someone... Uh, bring their equipment in because I've been I've been split testing basically all my equipment. So there's a there's a uh, an H6 Zoom which allows up to I think six inputs, and she, uh, she brought along lav mics which were really awesome yeah. and impressive. Uh, but for the most part, it's it's much easier logistically to organize Skype interviews. In the beginning, I was doing all in person, and I think there is some extra energy that you encounter in the in-person. But again, if you don't, you can't optimize something that you don't ship. That's an expression here in San Francisco. Meaning if you take forever to ship something, you can, you can't tweak it. Like if you don't ship it, you can't improve upon it. So get a crappy version out first. That's your minimally viable product. That was episode one. And then if if you're not going to record podcasts in the first place because it's too much of a hassle to get two people in the same place and find a quiet location and set up all the equipment, just do it via Skype. I use Call Recorder. Typically, there are other options, of course. But Call Recorder plus the ATR2100, uh, so far for me, with a headset, uh, I, I've realized that you get a lot of echo if you don't use a headset sometimes or have the other person use it, is really all you need to have something that your friends and close uh, supporters will put up with, right? And that's all you really want. You want them to kind of put up with the first two or three episodes and give you feedback. (laughs) And then the responsibility is is on you to to improve upon it. For me, again, maybe this is too much info, but uh, I ended up using Libsyn after a lot of consideration for hosting. Uh, There are, of course, other options. Who do you use currently? Uh, I use both Libsyn and also SoundCloud. I'm actually doing sort of in some experimental stuff on SoundCloud right you now. You know, I've been curious. So I do, I've also experimented a little bit with SoundCloud. Have you found there to be a lot of organic uh, downloads or listens aside from when you promote it? Because that that has been a challenge for me. I, I like SoundCloud. I really enjoy the technology. But the vast majority, I mean, 80 plus percent of my listens are coming from what iTunes listeners, whether I'm whether that's native or I'm forcing them <laughs> to right. use iTunes. 
with uh, with SoundCloud, I mean, I'm going to have an, a, a whole episode with um, sort of the results of using SoundCloud. The, the reason I like using SoundCloud is, especially for the other show that I have, which is Ask Pat, which is a shorter format episode. Right. Um, it's, it's great because when you share those links on social media, people can actually play them from their Twitter stream yeah. or on their Facebook stream. So for a five to ten minute show, that makes complete sense. For an hour to two hour show, like kind of hours, um, it maybe wouldn't people wouldn't stay on Twitter for two hours. Right. Uh, yeah. So anyway, then, the, yeah, these are the kind of things that I'm figuring out. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You're no, no, no. Then. Uh, I I will I'll save the rest for for that episode. That that's coming up. <laughs> um, but again, thank you for mentioning and and supporting the ATR twenty one hundred. I mentioned that in my podcasting tutorial. Uh, Tim called me up the other day and he was like, "Hey, I need a better mic," and I gave him that one. So, like we said, fifty bucks as opposed to the high LPR forty. They sound virtually the same to the untrained ear. Yeah. And uh, I'm I'm glad you're enjoying it. So yeah, the quality. Oh no, no, I was I was just gonna say I appreciate the uh, the feedback. It's been it's been very helpful. Cool. Yeah. So the podcastingtutorial.com. That's my free tutorial. No emails required. It'll go through all the different mic options, how to edit and do all that stuff. So moving on, Tim. Um, you know, you like to run experiments on on yourself. You're like a human guinea pig, and I've read a lot about what you what you've done, and I've learned a lot from it too, especially from uh, in Four Hour Body. But I'm curious, in terms of marketing and business, are you also running exper- uh, experiments? And what, what have some of those experiments been? Are you running any right now to just try things, see what happens? And, and you know, what have the results been from any of those, if, if any? Yeah, yeah, constantly. I mean, that's, in, in a way, my, my second set of guinea pig experiments. And what's been really fascinating since 2007 or so, when, when I started becoming very involved with startups... And many people don't realize that that's basically my primary financial career <laughs> outside of publishing, uh, which is very secondary mm-hmm. uh, in terms of revenue, is, is advising and investing in tech startups. Uh, so that's I was cool. uh, pre-seed money, Uber, uh, Evernote, Shopify, uh, and the, the list goes on and on and on. There are between 30 and 35 uh, companies, and most of them are consumer-facing companies. So what does that mean? Not accidentally, that that allows me to not only see the experiments that I do on my blog or in business, and I can explain what some of those are, it allows me to get the inside playbook for what all of these other companies are doing. So if I'm curious about direct response radio, I have a company that I can go to that's probably spending a million dollars a month doing that. If I want to learn about retargeting and uh, anything YouTube specific, I have a company that I can go to that's making just an art form out of that. And uh, that has been really, really fun. That sounds uh, really cool. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Uh, and, and on a macro level, uh, for instance, I helped to design the Shopify Build a Business competition way back in the day. I think it was 2008, 2009, 2009 probably. And uh, they now have 100,000 stores on the platform. So they can aggregate patterns and not only show me what works and what doesn't, but show people who are competing in the competition what works and what doesn't. So uh, a great way for people to see different experiments and inflection points and what didn't work, what worked, is to uh, go to my blog, which is just fourhourblog.com, F-O-U-R, spell it all out, fourhourblog.com, and click on Muse Examples in the topics. And in Muse Examples, each post typically profiles four to five different companies, what worked, what didn't, how they got their first PR wins and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Personally, right now, uh, you'll find this maybe hilarious, is I am experimenting properly with email capture for the first time. So I've I've never uh, I've never built my list, so to speak. 
And this was a deliberate choice, not uh, not a incompetent accident. That, 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 I was incompetent when I started, so I'm <laughs> curious to hear the intentionality behind this. Oh, no, I've got plenty of incompetence. Don't get me wrong. I've, I mean, there are plenty of things where I look back and I'm like, what an idiot. Are you kidding me? Like, there are things that have been broken on my site for a year or two before I noticed. And I'm like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that has been broken for so long. Like I've been driving a car with two flat tires for a year. <laughs> Jesus. But the email, deliberately, I did not want to, I did not want people to feel they were being marked as uh, sales prospects from their first encounter with my material. I wanted people to develop a very high degree of trust with me and in so doing, realize that my recommendations were first and foremost based on my thousands of experiments and selection of the best possible uh, tools, products, services available on the planet, right? And that was the the purpose with that has been the purpose with my with my books. For instance, in the case of the Four Hour Body, I could have created a sports nutrition or a nutraceutical line and uh, and I've keep in mind I've built and sold these types of businesses in the past so I know I know the numbers. I could have built a t- like a, a 10 to 20 million dollar a year business easily had I launched a line of products with the launch of the 4 hour body. I did not do that. Why on earth would I make that choice? I made that choice because I wanted to be bulletproof against criticism that I was biased in my recommendations because I was making money from those recommendations. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to build, and I, I, this, this is not, by the way, a black and white, I did the right thing type of scenario. Uh, there are many ways that someone could argue uh, it wasn't an either or thing. I could have done both. I could have pulled it off, but I felt like it was too risky. So I didn't really capture email addresses properly uh, for the last however many years since the blog launched 2007. And I've been experimenting. If you go to 4hourworkweek slash blog or 4hourblog.com, you'll see a lot of split testing going on right now. So I have a, uh, I have a team of folks, actually, and we're going to do a bunch of different post-mortem, like post-game analysis posts about this to show people how it works and what worked and what didn't. Cool. Um, use, and, but I'm doing all sorts of split testing on location of email capture, uh, color of email capture, call to action on the buttons, uh, <laughs> the the promise in the copy, downloadable PDFs versus blah, 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 blah. It's going to go on and on. So there, there are about six to eight weeks of split testing that I'm doing right now. So if you go to the blog, uh, and here's a trick. If you want to see if someone's split testing, uh, you have their URL. So you visit their page. Now, you've, you've probably been cookied at that point if they're doing split testing mm-hmm. because they don't want to display multiple versions to the same person. Uh, if you put after the URL, and I believe this works in most browsers, question mark equals and then no cache, all lowercase one word, that will clear the cache. And you can see uh, what other variants might look like. It's kind of a fun little trick. Oh, cool. And um, I'm, I'm also running experiments with the uh, the book club, for instance. So in the case of the book club, I'm acquiring often audiobook rights. I will be acquiring digital rights. And I've experimented with timing of launches. I've experimented with pricing of the books themselves. I've experimented also with how to look at, say, exclusivity on ACX 
which is owned by Amazon and helps you to self-publish to iTunes and Amazon and so on, Audible, mm-hmm. uh, versus non-exclusivity plus something like Gumroad, which allows you to do direct selling to your audience with roughly a 5% commission, right? right? Uh, so you're doubling at least, at the very least, you're doubling your royalties, but is the volume there, is the discovery there, this is actually a big deal, to make it worth it. And uh, so, so I'm running those types of experiments. Uh, and then there are other things that you can see on the blog over time. For instance, uh, I, I tend to, and you know, probably know more about this than I do, uh, but I, I tend to like to go very low-priced or very high-priced. I don't like to play in the middle very much. And uh, that's because I either want something that is an impulse purchase that is not likely to generate a lot of customer service headache mm-hmm. uh, and it, that can be completely automated. In other words, it doesn't have a sales cycle. There's no real uh, persuasion involved. It's a binary yes or no decision. Right. Or That's low price s- stuff. Right. Or something like the opening the kimono event, which I uh, did several years ago, which was very limited capacity. I think it was ultimately ended up being about 120 or 130 people. Uh, and it, it could have been much larger, but we turned away a lot of people. And that was uh, a minimum of $7,500 per person, maximum $10,000 per person. And the pricing depend on, de- de- was dependent on how quickly you signed up. And uh, that sold out with a single blog post of roughly, I don't know, 500 and 750 words. <laughs> That's the only promotion that I did for the entire event. Wow. And you start running the numbers and it turns into real money. Now, do I want to run events consistently? Probably not. It's, it's, it was fun once, but I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel every time I do it. And I feel like the tools I presented in that, co- in that sort of inner circle, tight, knit meeting mm-hmm. uh, were sort of persistent, they're perennial or timeless, and I don't want to have to reinvent it next time around. But anyway, these are some of the tests that I run. I'm constantly, constantly running tests. And you will be revealing uh, the results of those tests on the blog at some point. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And I'll also talk about you know some of the other stuff related to the launch of the podcast, right? And there's, there's, uh, there, there are some uh, non-obvious kind of tricks, uh, which are uh, completely ethical. I mean, very above board, nothing, 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 uh, bad. Uh, but, uh, the, you know, I think that a lot of the secret sauce is in sequencing the progression. I mean, this is true for learning. It's also for, true for launches and execution. So in the podcast world, like if you're promoting a podcast in, you might have six different things you're planning on doing. I think that very often what those are is important, but in what order you do them is just as important. Uh, so I'll be talking about that uh, because, you know, like you said, you know, the Tim Ferriss show, the podcast has been pretty much in the top 10 since it launched across all of iTunes and it's number eight right now. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to experiment to the extent that I can use the stats to help me. And of course, a lot of a lot of what happens on iTunes is uh, in a black box, so it makes it a little more yeah. difficult. But uh, but uh, there there is a fair amount of data that you can pull from stats that you would get on Libsyn and SoundCloud and things like that. Um, so yeah, I'll be doing a post on that as well because uh, the the fact of the matter is, even if you give this this is where people underestimate themselves and overestimate the rest of the world, and I've talked about this before. But even if I gave 
step-by-step instructions on how to beat my podcast. Here is how you produce a superior podcast that will rank higher on iTunes. <laughs> I, there's a very high probability that no one would do it. Uh, and I've noticed this. If no, you one go to would, my blo- no one would take the action to do it or no, no one no, would no actually? One, no one would take the action. No one would actually go through all of the steps and details to get it done. Uh, it's, I've just been astonished with, for instance, uh, book launches and bestseller lists and all that stuff. I have, I have specked out exactly more than anywhere else on the web that I have seen in any language how the bestseller lists work, how to write a bestseller, how to launch a bestseller, step by step, what to do. You can look at you know posts like I think it's twelve lessons learned uh, marketing the four hour body, um, and there are uh, do- probably a dozen posts of that detail mm-hmm. on my blog. I read them all. Yeah, and people do not. They'll launch a book and they won't do any of it. It's just like it blows my mind. And then they'll call me, you know, a week before the launch. They'll be like, hey, can you help me launch the book? And I'm like, dude, you are a dollar short and a day late. Well, like, let's, this is- <laughs> let's talk about that. What, why is that the case? Uh, people, so this is going to sound funny coming from me perhaps, but there is an erroneous belief that uh, that my focus is on uh, shirking responsibility or avoiding work. That's not at all. And if if what I'm about, and if you read the four hour work week, I think this is clear that I'm about maximizing per hour output and deconstructing problems to find non obvious solutions. Okay, so let's just say that you do all of that. What you now have is. A, a selection of targets that are very high impact where you can allocate your time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but even if you prescri- provide that recipe, that, that prescription, like one to 10, here's how you can become fluent in Spanish in eight weeks. You've told me for the last year that that's what you want to do, that that is a dream of yours. But I think that people are either one, not willing to put in the effort to something that has proven to work, or number two, and I think this could be a big piece of it, they're so afraid that of failing even if they do it. You know, if if I fail following this recipe that works, I will lose self-respect. I will look bad. I will lose hope. Whatever it might be, mm-hmm. uh, people just don't do it. And this this is this was borne out in one of the examples I put in the four hour work week, which was I would go to this Princeton class twice a year, high tech entrepreneurship. This is these are high level kids, right? I mean, we've got uh, undergrads and graduates in electrical engineering and operations research finance at Princeton. These are smart people, and I would offer a round trip anywhere in the world to people who would contact impossible to reach people. And get them to respond in a meaningful way. And the, the what was so astonishing is that because everyone in the class overestimated what the other stu- students would do, they didn't even try. And they would raise their hands and I'd have like 15 students who'd say, oh my God, I'm definitely going to do it, totally going to do it. And then either zero of them would do it or one or two would do it. And their their results would actually be pretty lukewarm, mediocre, but because no one else tried, they won. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. And... Uh, I mean, that is life. I mean, that is life in a nutshell. So uh, in any case, I, I could go on and on. But uh, suffice to say, the, the, what that whole rant started with is I'm going to be doing a post-game analysis of, of, of the podcasting experiments and what worked and what didn't. Sweet. Well, I'll make sure to update the show notes for this podcast whenever those results that we just talked about for those experiments come, come about. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, moving on, 
productivity is huge. We all have the same 24 hours in a day. Certain people seem to just do way more than others. And we've talked about productivity a little bit in the last episode, in episode 51. Um, it's been a year and a half. What are some things that are working for you right now? You know, beyond working with a team, I mean, you're, you're special. You're Tim Ferriss. You have a team working with you, but a lot of people don't. How can people become more productive today? Well, uh, there are a number of things that they can do. And I would also say, you know, having, having spoken with you, yeah, your team's actually bigger than my team right now. I have one executive assistant. That is it. <laughs> uh, I, I, I have a two-person team. Uh, so the, the way I get away with that is by focusing first and foremost on what I consider timeless principles of being effective. Okay, So you have productivity, which is a combination of, in my mind, being effective, choosing the right things to do, and being efficient, doing those things well. If you screw up the first part, doing things quickly just makes matters worse. So <laughs> that I think it's Peter Drucker, who's one of my favorite authors, on this type of thing, who, who once said, and it could have been Warren Buffett, also a great thinker when it comes to productivity, that you know that which is not worth doing is not worth doing well, <laughs> right? <laughs> which, which makes sense. But if you were to do a, a, an autopsy on, it sounds rather morbid, <laughs> if you were to do an audit on how you spent yesterday, and you meaning the audience listening to this, uh, or how I spent yesterday, it, it applies to everybody, uh, you will find that the vast majority of time for most people is spent on doing things quickly that are absolutely unimportant or at the very best non-critical. Right? Right. So the first thing I would say is picking up a book that seems outdated like The Effective Executive. And you could certainly read a number of the chapters in the 4-Hour Workweek that consolidate a lot of this. But The Effective Executive is all about being effective, number one, first and foremost. Once you have identified the, the one or two uh, force multipliers on your to-do list, I think a second very crucial step is having a ritual for the first hour of your day. What, what is the like, launch sequence for each morning that makes you calmly effective. And that is something you have to script for yourself. For me, it entails waking up before I check email or my messages or anything like that. I have uh, athletic greens plus L-glutamine. I, I could get into the recipe, but I have that on an empty stomach with ice water. I sit down, I do transcendental meditation for 20 minutes in the same spot. I then get up and I brew, on, I, would, I should say, uh, heat hot water for a combination of pu'er and green tea, which I'm drinking right now as we speak. Uh, I take one or two supplements. Then after I've worked on an empty stomach, and this, this differs from uh, the slow carb diet uh, mandate, typically where I recommend 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up, mm -hmm. uh, but I'm doing ex some experiments right now. Uh, and I, I very often do that. But right now, my launch sequence is having this tea, sitting down, journaling for my day, sort of specking out the blueprint for the rest of the day after that hour, my day will be basically, uh, my, I will be extremely happy with my day if I do this one thing. And what is that one thing? You have to decide before you get in front of the computer and go into a purely reactive bullet dodging mode. And you block out time to focus on that without other inputs. That's it. If you do that, 
you will be ahead of 99% of the people in the world. Now, there are other tactical tools. Yes, people tend to love to focus on email, so I'll give a couple of recommendations related to email. But email, email is like masturbation. I mean, it really is. It's just, it, or it's just like this. It's a simulation of something that actually in, is is not the real thing. It it it, it mimics forward motion when it's just a bunch of freaking jerking off. I mean, it really, for the most part, is that. And uh, so I I tend to not lead with recommendations about email. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're going to work on email, then there are a few few things you can consider. One is uh, if you're operating out of Gmail or some other programs, use an extension called Boomerang. This allows you to automatically have emails kicked back up to the top of your inbox if someone does not respond. So you don't have to keep track of that type of thing. You can also schedule emails to be sent later, which I do constantly, particularly if I'm declining someone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, will, I will schedule an email to be sent later so it gives me 48 hours, 72 hours of breathing room uh, if they determine that being persistent is a good idea, which it actually very seldom is with me. Uh, I, do, I do not reward persistence if I have thought about something and given, given it a clear no. Uh, that's boomerang. The second which is actually produced by the same company, is something called Email Game, email ga.me, which allows you to process your email linearly. And uh, this is very interesting for a, a number of reasons. The punchline is it helps me process my email in probably 50% of the time it would normally take if I were to do it the conventional way. And this is because you're not returning to the inbox and bouncing around up and down, choosing things, marking them as unread, starring them, blah, blah, blah. You're forced on a timed clock to go through your email sequentially. And mm, it, is, is, it is very, very helpful, worth experimenting with. The last recommendation that I would make is <clears throat> process your email offline uh, to reduce anxiety uh, and I, I do think that anxiety and fear are the opposite. They are the antithesis of creativity. You can't, it's very hard to come up with creative solutions or think outside the box and outgrow your own problems if you're constantly anxious. So reducing that is very important. Meditation is one tool. Processing email offline is another tool because if you're processing email online, what happens? You send off one email and then you get two in response. You send off another email and then you get four in response and you freak out <laughs> because yeah. it's, you feel like you're digging a hole while someone else is filling it in at twice the speed. It's extremely uh, nerve-wracking. Uh, so I will use Gmail offline or other email clients. I just use Gmail offline in, in Chrome to uh, download email and then I will, for instance, go to have tea or coffee or even have dinner in some places that where I'm not going to annoy other people. And I'll sit down and I'll just you know, sip a glass of wine and, and jam through 50, 100, 150 email in offline and then send them all at the same time once I'm done doing that. Right. Yeah, I love Those, that. I mean, yeah. email's been a huge pain for me and I just recently hired somebody to help me through it and we've got a great system going. And part of the big thing that she told me was, you know, and, and I don't, she didn't say this quote, but I remember hearing this quote somewhere and it sums it up nicely. It's like, Remember, the inbox is nothing but a convenient organizing system for other people's agendas. Yep. And it's so true because it's just how is that actually helping us get to completing our mission or, like you said, what we would be happy with if we accomplished that today. And yeah. uh, I think it just makes people feel like they're doing work, and that's that's what I was doing. I was feeling like I was getting things done by answering emails and you know taking a lot of the recommendations to answer emails, batch processing them, and using these tools and stuff, but... 
you know, I've made some priority shifts and uh, email is still there. It's obviously important, but it's not at the top of the list and it's not the, definitely the first thing I don't check in the morning. I only check twice a day now. Yeah, it's a good policy and I would say two things. You know, number, number one, uh, so that quote, uh, I think might even some variant of it, and I'm sure many people have said it, is in the four-hour work week. So the son-in-law of a billionaire was on a ski lift with his you know, father-in-law his father-in-law said, wow, you know, I'm so glad that you make me look so good. And his son-in-law was checking his email on his BlackBerry on the chairlift. And he goes, yeah, why is that? And he goes, because you check email all the time. You check it every five minutes. You make my habits look fantastic. And he said, just remember, email is everyone else's agenda for your time. And it's true. It's worth remembering, number one. Number two, I would also just add the only way to get to inbox zero without making it your full-time job so you can't actually do whatever work you're trying to do. The only way to get to inbox zero reliably is to respond to fewer email. That's it. Yeah. That's uh, true. Yeah. Um, all right. To finish up here, Tim, I, this has been a great conversation and I feel like we could just talk for hours, but I definitely want to respect your time. Um, the last question I want to ask you is sort of a generic question that a lot, a lot of people ask other people who are on people's shows. And I think people are very interested to hear what your answer is and sort of how you would approach this. And this is, of course, if you had to start over again today without any of the context that you have, you know, maybe a little bit of money in the bank. If you wanted to start a business today, what would you do? Okay, so this this uh, will hopefully be a satisfying answer, uh, but it, it may not be. What I would say is business is extremely wide as a category. And uh, there are businesses that you can use to avoid contact with your significant other. There are businesses that you can use to... Uh, go seek venture capital to try to swing for the fences in a binary way and have a huge exit of some type with an acquisition or an IPO, for instance. Hmm. There are businesses that you can build to supplement your full-time income doing something else where it's just intended to add a little bit of buffer while you work in a job that you actually love, for instance. And there are cases like this. I mean, there are people in the clergy. There are people who are teachers, for instance, who build muses for this purpose. Uh, there are people who create businesses to supplant or replace their job because they want to leave their job. Uh, and the reason I make these the this list and give these examples is because the what you design and the decisions you make is entirely dependent on what your goal is uh, or goals. And this is why dreamlining is so important. And I'm, I'm going to give you an answer specific to my goals, but uh, you need to define what is it you want to have, what is it you want to do, who is it you want to be on some level, although the first two help quite a bit, mm-hmm. say in the 12 and 24 month range, and then price that out and determine what your target monthly income is. That is the only way I have found to repeatedly and uh, reliably design businesses uh, so that they result in this ideal lifestyle. And I think but, it's, it's important to, I just want to reiterate that because a lot of people just want to create a business and then they start and then they don't know where they're going and it turns into something that they didn't, you know, that that is different than what they had assumed it would be. That's why the whole, you know, understanding, you sort of reverse engineering, what do you want life to be like and then what kind of business would you need to make that life? It's uh, Jeremy and Jason from Internet Business Mastery call it, what's your single motivating purpose? Right. That, that's key. It's huge it's, and it's, it's, you don't, by the way, you don't have to, it's not a permanent decision. So you just need a destination in mind. And I, I think that many people who fail in business fail in their various forms of business because 
they it's they want to start a business in the same way they want to learn how to fly a plane and then they get up in the air they've learned how to fly and they have no idea where to land the plane <laughs> and they have no idea where they're going mm-hmm. and they're watching their fuel tank tick down and that is precisely where i think the vast majority 80% plus that i've met of small business owners end up because they did not start with at least a tentative plan with a target monthly income and so on Right. Uh, for me personally, we would have to identify a period in time. So in, in, in 2005, 2004, when I was completely redesigning uh, Brain Quicken and Body Quick, which was my sports nutrition company at the time, to either extricate myself or to shut it down, uh, I had very specific goals, which were to maintain that revenue or have it drop no more than, say, 20% while I extricated myself and got to the point where it was two hours or, or fewer per week, say, in management time for, mm-hmm. all, for all aspects of the business. And uh, at this point in time, if, if I were, say, advising someone who had very similar personality traits, very similar predilections, strengths and weaknesses, who was a recent graduate from college, and by the way, I do that all the time because I, I work with a lot of young entrepreneurs, uh, my advice would be to choose, ch- focus on your strengths instead of fixing all of your weaknesses. And uh, th- that is assuming they've gone through the dreamlining process, right? So the answer I'm not going to give is I would create an info product on creating apps and how to focus on geolocating. No. Uh, uh, the advice I'm not going to give is you should create, you know, Airbnb for dyslexic chihuahuas because that's the next big opportunity. <laughs> the advice I would give is do the hard thinking now of the dreamlining, so you don't need to do incredibly hard work later, like Sisyphus pushing a boulder up a hill that just rolls down every 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 few months. Uh, and then I would say to choose the channels for customer acquisition and uh, customer communication. I don't really like the word engagement very much because I think it's, 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 it's used in too many ways, so it's lost a lot of its meaning. Mm-hmm. But uh, the reason I say that is I'm approached by many people who are, say, fantastic in te- on television who ask me if they should start a blog because they see that my blog has been this sort of nexus, this heartbeat of uh, influence for me and communication for me. Uh, and my answer is no, you shouldn't blog because that's not your strength. You don't like writing. If you have somebody ghost write it and it's just this, this generic, you know, run of the mill content farm, you're not going to go anywhere. So focus on your strengths. If it's, if it's TV, do TV. If it's video, focus on video. If it's short form, go to YouTube. If it's six seconds, go to Vine. If it's, uh, photographs, go to Instagram, right? If it's, if it's, if it's, fill in the blank, go to Facebook, Twitter, choose your primary network, number one, and then everything else leads back to that, that nexus, that center. So for me, I made a very deliberate choice uh, that the blog, and I, I'm still a very firm believer in WordPress, I think it's, and granted, at this point in time, I'm an advisor to Automatic, which makes WordPress.com, so you know, take that with a grain of salt, but that's because I've used WordPress since the very beginning. Since my very first day of blogging, I've used WordPress and it is extremely good for SEO out of the box. Uh, but I chose blogging. The blog is my sort of home address, if you will. Everything else I do is a satellite office. And uh, whether that's Twitter, which has a different purpose, right? Mm-hmm. A, a semi-different purpose, uh, or 
uh, any of these other networks that I use, the goal is to ultimately drive people back to the, the headquarters, back to home base, which is the blog. Um, so it's a very long answer. Uh, I think that it is, ne- I would just say this, if you are doing anything with digital products, physical products, even retail, it has never been easier to start a company. Uh, it, it, the tools out there are so good. You have, and there are so many options, right? This can be a problem though, like we talked about. Yeah. You, ha- you have things like Celery for doing pre-orders on Kickstarter. You have so many options available. The challenge at this point in time, I think, is not in starting a business. It's in getting attention for your business because as a result of it never having been easier, you have more noise and more static online than ever before. Uh, so you need to be very good at determining what your strengths are, what your message is, who your thousand true fans are, and how you're going to go after them. Read Kevin Kelly's 1,000 True Fans. If you're going to read only one article on marketing for the rest of your life, that's the one. I agree. And you need to be very, very laser focused, which is, again, why, coming back to the beginning of the conversation, being effective is what counts. Being efficient is so far in second place as to almost not even be a consideration. If you do a handful of things right, even if you're slow and plodding and lethargic about it, you will beat almost everyone. I mean, it's just, it's really amazing. Uh, for those people who, who can get into dense stuff, pick up the annual letters of the annual letters of Warren Buffett to Berkshire Hathaway shareholders. That is going to be worth more to you than any MBA program on the planet, I think. Uh, so those, those would be a couple of my observations in response to a very short question. So sorry for the long-winded answer. No, I appreciate it. A lot of gold nuggets in there. And Tim, thank you so much for coming back on the show. We, we will appreciate it so much. And, uh, you know, we look forward to uh, checking out your podcast, seeing how far it goes, and also seeing the results of all those experiments too. No, I appreciate that. Tim Ferriss Show, guys. Check it out. Give me some feedback. I'm always up for improvement. And there's some pretty pretty cool cats who are on the show. Awesome. Thanks, Tim. We appreciate you. All right. Thanks, Pat. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Tim Ferriss. Again, check him out, his new podcast, Tim Ferriss Podcast. Just put Tim Ferriss in iTunes and you'll check it out. And also, it's probably going to be right up there near the top. So thank you. If you want the show notes for this episode, head on over to smartpassiveincome.com slash session 110. And for all of you out there who listen to the podcast, I got a special treat for you. Coming later, by the end of this month, actually, this is May 2014, you're going to see a brand new iPhone application that's going to help you consume this podcast, the Ask Pat podcast, and also blog content in a really easy, convenient manner. You know, I do have an app already, but this one is the 2.0 2.0 version. It's just so much better. The user experience is much better, and I think you'll like it. And again, of course, it's going to be free. So look out for it on the blog very soon. Just head on over to smartpassiveincome.com, and uh, by the end of the month, it'll be it'll be ready for you. Hopefully, if Apple approves it, and uh, I don't see why they wouldn't. Anyway, thank you again, showing us for this episode. Smartpassiveincome.com/slash/session110. Take care, and I'll see you in the next episode. Peace. So podcasting is obviously a big deal here at SPI, and today. I'm so excited to tell you about our newest podcast. Yes, a brand new podcast called Flops. Flops is all about exploring, celebrating, and normalizing failure in the entrepreneurial journey. Every entrepreneur experiences failure at some point, so I love that we're just facing it head on here. And the show is hosted by two members of the team, Karen and Ray, and in it, they talk to entrepreneurs who have had stumbles, setbacks, and flat-out failures. These guests are honest and generous with their stories, and I think they offer hope and encouragement for all other entrepreneurs out there because we all experience it, right? We all experience failure. For example, in the first episode, Ray talks to John who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme 
It's a story with twists and turns that will keep you hooked. It's a great story. I highly recommend you check it out. But one thing I love about Flops is that it doesn't dwell on the failure and it always finds a bright side. I really love it and I think you will too. So the first season of Flops has already started with new episodes dropping on Wednesdays. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also listen at smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash flops. I hope you enjoy it. 